Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it's wonderful to have with us this week, Dr. Nemi Colton Fromm, who is Associate Professor of Religion in Haverford College. She holds an MA and a PhD in Jewish studies from Stanford, and is also author of Hermeneutics of Holiness, Ancient Jewish and Christian Notions of Sexuality and Religious Community. And it's wonderful to have you with us to explore Vayakal Pekude, a double sedra this week. And maybe let's look at Pekude and the chapters 38 to 40, which really have a focus, of course, on the Mishkan. And then in the corresponding in Kings, where, of course, we read about the construction of Solomon's temple, both the Mishkan and the temple, of course, speak to the sacred space of God's presence. I wonder, though, how really they differ. So let me just say one thing I noted just as I was reviewing for this discussion is that because this next week is Shabbat Chodesh, our Haftor is actually from Ezekiel and not the one from Kings. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for that correction. And maybe not the best place to reference Kings on this occasion, but let's go with it. Still words from the Bible yes. and a useful, useful parallel to draw from as we talk about the Mishkan. And Ezekiel is a good parallel as well. Another one, because he's also talking about oh. that. We can add it's them all. It's all in. words of Torah and look forward to the connection then with both Kings and Ezekiel. Look forward to seeing how you accomplish that standing on one foot. Yeah, both spaces, if we're looking first at the Mishkan and temple, Solomon's temple, are spaces to contain, to manage, to hold uh, God's presence in some way. And that's what they are both trying to do. And both try both to be concrete. There's space, there's tents, there's walls, there's everything. But And yet God can't be fully contained within. They are very similar, trying to do the same work in that sense. Thank you. And maybe then just focusing in on the Mishkan, what do we deal with? Indeed, maybe how does the text itself deal with the very problematic idea of the divine presence physically occupying the Mishkan, a difficult theological problem? How does the text deal with with that. In both cases, God is represented by a cloud, by a mist, by fire. The, it, our text in Exodus is much you know, cloud by day, fire by night. In the King's text, it's more mist that fills the tent such that the people, the humans, can't even go into the tent. And yet it's not solid. It's like this mist or substance that, that is so strong and present, and yet is not embodied. Maybe you can touch it, maybe you can see it, but you can't describe it. And then maybe dwelling on your understanding of 
ancient Near Eastern literature, what kind of light does that throw on the context of understanding the Mishkan as we have it in Exodus? Yeah, so what we know about at least structures of the ancient Near East, sacred structures, both the temple and the Mishkan duplicate other ancient Near Eastern, particularly Levantine sacred structures. I mean, the three-partate holiest holy in foyer, right? the three-part shrine is like all the other sacred spaces we have discovered because we have nothing from archaeology, from first temple. Um, that said, it seems to be how the deities were represented in those contexts are different. And I don't know that we have how much information we have on that in terms of how a deity would have been situated. Was it an idol? Was it an icon? Was it neither in these contexts? But certainly the space is the same. So one thinks that one would think that the theology is similar, even if for an Israelite context, if they're pushing back against some notion of a more embodied deity or representation of the deity, because our text is so much against that, that's where the the mist, the cloud is more appropriate, let's say, for how the, these biblical authors are trying to represent and yet not represent <laughs> the, the presence and yet not. And it's not in, in, it's in words. It's not, we're not getting images. It's how to describe a presence that is and isn't there. I just was prompted, I jogged, that we didn't quite explore the reference with Ezekiel. How is the, how is the Mishkan and Ezekiel, like what's the parallel there that you draw out? What's interesting about the Ezekiel description, I think goes to the Mishkan in this way, in that the Mishkan is built on God's blueprint. Right? God gives the blueprint to Moses and says, build me this thing, and this is the way it should look, and then they do it. Ezekiel's temple also has a divine blueprint. He's just following the directions that God gives him. But in the longer Ezekiel text, Ezekiel is, I think he's guided around the building or the vision of the building by some like some other supernatural agent of God. But then there's that wonderful image of God getting into his throne, his throne chair with wheels. And he flies off and he visits the gate and then he visits the outside wall and then he goes up to heaven. So you have a really concrete image. It's got a chair and it's got wheels and he's got a body to sit, even though he's not described as such, the chair is described. So I find that very interesting that in Ezekiel's vision of all visions, he has a much more embodied divinity. And of course, in the stories, the divinity is leaving because something's wrong and the new temple will be something different. So Ezekiel really much more of a kind of concrete description than we have from the haze and the it's much more mystical and the last vision of the the temple is the water running out underneath the threshold that the temple itself is alive you might say or the water comes from <laughs> from within brings life it does what god does it brings life to the people but this is all kind of a future mystical mythical vision rather than the very concrete descriptions of the mishkan or solomon's temple as a thing that exists and then maybe could you go into a little more around the differentiation of the narrative between the Mishkan and the temple more generally and why you see that as important? I think both of them, but I'm particularly taken with the Mishkan description as what I call it a democratic vision. 
in the way the text describes what goes on inside the Mishkan with the cult and the, the altar and the ark and where everything is and where everyone people are standing and it's in the middle of the people. So the the whole of Israel is around the Mishkan. And so you wouldn't necessarily have a good sight line if you were among the people of Israel coming in because you were thousands, right? There's hordes of Israel, Israelites. But as a reader, you have a direct vision into what's going on in, in the Mishkan. So it's bringing us in to that, to witness or participate in the actions that are going on in the Mishkan itself. Now, similarly, it happened, you get the same sort of description in Solomon's temple, but it, one step removed. Rather than being in the center of the people, it's on the Temple Mount or whatever it was, the mountain, and the elite of the city are there, but the people are much further out, right? And the text itself is much more focused on the covenant of Solomon as son of David with God, as opposed to the covenant with God that the people have signed that's sitting in the Mishkan. That's kind of secondary to the temple. That's why I think the Mishkan is much more this utopic people's scene, as opposed to the temple is really, it's almost a family shrine to Solomon, the Davidic dynasty. It's really about that covenant. Obviously, in the arc of the Bible, the Mishkan precedes the temple. But do you see there as being perhaps evidence that in fact, the Mishkan was some kind of a later interpolation? And it, so how do you arrive at that kind of conclusion? That's a very hard question to answer in the sense of like on hard data. And it may even be that we have two different traditions that are, because the covenants themselves sit in tension with each other throughout, you know, throughout the arc of the narrative, right? You have covenant with the people and Moses, the covenant with David, and they don't quite match up. They do different things, but they're both there and they're both important. You maybe go into that into some of their differences or the covenant with David is about a covenant of dyna- of an eternal dynasty for the Davidic throne, as long as the kings are faithful to God. So it's almost as if the people don't matter. <laughs> it's only it's on the king. And the king and his sons, that they have to keep up this covenant with God. But the people's covenant, Moses' covenant is about the people and the nation. So how do you, the text never totally squares them, but they're both functioning at the same time and have different moments of crisis throughout the narrative. So which came first? There's no consensus, I think, among the scholars as to which text is earlier than the other. But there is a way of seeing if historically the, the records of the kingdom of David to his sons, to the split of the kingdom, to the Israel. Even within the text, they talk about it's written in the archives of the kings. You can go see this material. None of the other stuff is really eyewitness recording of the early stuff. And it seems much more mythic, starting from Genesis, right? So I place all, all five books of Moses as a origin myth. And origin myths in general are usually written after the fact, right? So how do we talk about where we came from and who we are and how we got here? And that often is a much later conversation after the people already are and are established. So that's why I would put it later. And it's much more um, utopic of a description of the Mishkan, but also possibly after experience of inner political crisis, not necessarily after the destruction of the temple, but certainly Throughout the years that the temple, either temple existed, there was strife among people of Israelites as to how the temple was supposed to 
function, who was in control, who had first say. It was not the unifier it was supposed to be. It was more of a divisive item in many ways. So I think the Mishkan it is presented as a more ideal situation, democratic. There's no king. It's all about the people. All the politics have been set aside. It's just us and God. So that's what that's why I would put it later, but it could still just be two different approaches to to living with God's presence. And then maybe finally, as we read about both the Mishkan and Temple today, from a literary perspective, how does that really change, do you see, our understanding of the narratives? And maybe is that the most important? Are we supposed to understand them from a literary perspective as opposed to a kind of recreation in one's mind. I think as literature, it is much more accessible to all sorts of people. The temple itself was never accessible to everybody. First of all, only the priests can go in. But then if you happen to be the right gender and have the money to get to Jerusalem, you could get in yourself. But that also excludes a lot of people. So the literary descriptions, I think, are much more accessible to a larger variety of Israelites to whoever's reading the text. And, but also it's a way, it's a way to imagine yourself there in the process of visualizing the divine or being with the people or however you think of Am Yisrael. I think it just gives much more flexibility into how you join in because it's your reading of the text and how you enter the text or the image or the vision. In Buddhism, you might use a mandala or Catholicism, an icon, it's not that that is the divine, it's it's an avenue towards. We use words, we have descriptive words of these sacred spaces where God dwells among us as a means towards that spiritual journey, however we want to write it. What maybe finally are the kind of techniques, the literary techniques that you encounter that help guide us on that journey? Maybe some nuggets that you can share as we encounter this week's reading. Unfortunately, one of the things I love is actually is a section of the king's description of Solomon's temple that we don't actually read in the Haftarah is, is his dedication words. He basically says, I built your house, but I know you can't sit in it because you're too big. Like you, you just, you fill the world. You cannot possibly scrunch down into my little house. That's just not how you function. But make it a place through which your people can direct their prayers. So wherever they are, they can face towards it and the prayers will go up to heaven to you, and you'll answer them. So even that visual of all of us, when we daven or meditate, whatever, facing the space or the direction, and knowing that somehow it's a conduit, that's the access point. It just gives you a visual to think, of where are my words going? Where are my thoughts going? But even in the details of the Mishkan, I was just looking at the, uh, the translation. I was just trying to focus on the translation of how do I know that this word in Hebrew is a barrel? or a lapis lazuli. I don't know, I'm not biblical Hebraist in that sense, but just even thinking about all the different types of gems that went into the Hoshan or the types of, there's a lot of details there, the silk and who's making the silk and for what part and the length of the poles. And even if it doesn't all come together into one object, because the blueprints are not complete for real construction, but you can think through, I think, some of these smaller details towards participating in the building of the Mishkan. Traditional commentators often compare the creation of the world to the building of the Mishkan. And yet the building of the Mishkan is obviously detailed there is far greater than creation of the universe. That your take on that is 
to make it a democratizing process. Is that right? Sort of everyone participating. I think that's what the book does. If the words had remained oral, they would have been the purview of a few, the priest who knew the, the stories. But in writing them down, they're open to everyone, right? anyone who can read. In in that day, maybe it was not everybody who could read, but certainly now we all have access. And I think that's the way, that's the way to think about it. Dr. Colton Fromm, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights, giving us much food for contemplation as we encounter the Mishkan and Ezekiel's temple. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a good conversation. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, of course, check out all our exciting content we have for you at jewishquest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again next week.